All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here. And this morning, we are finishing our study in the book of Galatians. Um, we have, over the last year, been working our way progressively through this letter. And um, I hope those of you who have been part of this have been blessed by it as deeply as I have. It's been a joy to study and to unpack. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 6 this morning. Galatians chapter 6. So go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible on the uh, chair in front of you. Grab one of those. And uh, we're going to be turning to page 975 in our Bibles, Galatians chapter 6. As you're turning there, um, give you a heads up. Next week, we're actually beginning a new sermon series. It's a four-week series that we're calling The Great Adventure. And we're going to be unpacking um, really this, this idea that there is a God <laughs> who is on mission to redeem and restore, that, that He is weaving a story and invites us in, that ultimately He will tell a better story for our lives than we would tell for ourselves, and we can be part of that great adventure. And so over the next four weeks, we'll be unpacking that. Um, I hope you'll join us next week as we begin that. Okay. All right, Galatians chapter 6. Before we dive in, um, just want to take a moment and pray. So why don't you pray with me? Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for this incredible letter that reveals to us um, what's worth fighting for, the right way to fight. Um, and I pray, Lord, that uh, you will awaken our hearts um, to grace, that grace is worth fighting for and it is worth fighting um, well to grow in grace. Father, I pray that you'll open our, our eyes this morning and open our hearts Lord, it's one thing to study your word. It's another thing to be taught by your word. And so I pray, Lord, that we would be humble this morning, that we would come under your word, not over it to understand it, but under it to be molded by it. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the gift of receptive hearts. And in receiving this truth, Lord, that we might be changed. That we might not just study about freedom, we might be progressively set free. Pray, Lord, that you would put really an, an undeserved anointing on my teaching, that as I speak, Lord, you would be active. Lord, the things that we want to accomplish this morning are not in our ability. They only come from you. So pray, Lord, that you would be active, that you would make your name great, and that you would uh, allow us to leave, saying, what an incredible God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 6. We're actually going to be starting right at the very end of chapter 5, um, and we're going to read this together, starting in verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. 
So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, even upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. The word of the Lord. All right, we um, have a lot going on in this chapter. And um, it seems kind of like sometimes when you get to the application part of a letter, it can seem like the junk drawer uh, of, of the letter, like, well, here's a little of this and here's a little of that. And here's a little of this. There is, I believe a theme that runs through this entire chapter that weaves it together. And we're going to try and follow that theme this morning. And I think it begins where we left off last week, which is with verses, um, seven, eight, nine, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that will he also reap. There is a principle here, a very simple principle that choices have consequences. What you sow is what you will reap, right? Um, Lauren is the green thumb of our family. She loves to grow things. Um, she inherited that passion from her father and um, loves to grow vegetables and uh, flowers and loves to have a nice looking yard. We call summer salsa season um, because that's like the most important thing of all summer, right? Um, she makes this incredible salsa from, from our salsa garden. And, um, one year she decided she was going to make sure our lawn looked good, um, for the following season and, um, took some seeds. She probably got from her dad, if I had to guess, and, uh, sowed over the, the lawn. The problem was the next year, what came up was not grass, but this broad-leafed red lettuce stuff. And she had to spend the next season basically digging up each one of these individual plants as they came out. Why? Because what you sow, you will reap, right? That's a law in the physical universe. It is a law in the spiritual universe. Now, some of you are going to be like, Steve, this sounds a lot like karma, man. This is so different from the rest of Galatians. The rest of Galatians has all been about grace, that you get what you don't deserve that you rest in a record not your own, that you trust in the fact that Jesus gives you his rightness instead of you working for yours, right? It's all about God's great gift of what you don't deserve, God's great gift of love and acceptance that you didn't earn. What's all this talk now about you get what you deserve, that you get what you earn, that you reap what you sow? What he's unpacking is a very simple truth, and that very simply is what you invest in is what you get out of. Here's the thing. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have all the grace in the world, right? If you're a believer in Jesus, every blessing in Christ is yours. There's nothing left to earn. Christ earned it all for you. But I guarantee you, you are not experiencing all of those blessings. I guarantee you, even though you have all the grace in the world, you are not experiencing all the grace in the world. You are making choices that either help you go more deeply into grace 
or limits your experience of grace. It's not that you have more or have less. If you're a believer in Jesus, you've got it all, right? Paul says in the book of Ephesians, you're already seated in the heavenlies with Christ. If you believe in Jesus, you're covered in Christ, right? When God looks at you, he sees his son and he's perfectly satisfied. But that doesn't mean you're experiencing everything you have. And so Paul is arguing here, there's more. There's more. There's more to experience, right? So you need to sow carefully. The challenge, though, is that the sowing is internal. Our primary battle is not with the world. Our primary battle is not with religion. Our primary battle is with our own hearts, right? In verse 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. There's a trench warfare taking place in our hearts. And there are two forces at war. The flesh, not the physical body, but the spiritual part of us that is, is in love with death, honestly. That part of us that, that loves saying, I don't need God. I can do life apart from God. I can be autonomous from God. I don't need God's guidance. I don't need His rules. I don't need His presence. I can take all the gifts from God and reject the giver of those gifts, and I will be equal to God. That's what the flesh is, that part of us that wants to do life autonomous from God. And it is at war with the other part of us, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who comes to indwell us when we believe in Jesus. And and so what Paul is saying is we need to keep in step with the Spirit. We need to grow in grace, right? And like um, fruit, last week we talked about that, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, like fruit, God's going to change you, but the change is going to be slow and progressive. I mean, how long does it take for fruit to come on a tree? Well, from seed, it takes an awfully long time, right? And so there is a progressive change that takes place. God loves you as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you as you are, right? You're fully accepted in grace, but just because you're fully accepted in grace doesn't mean God is content with with where you are. He wants to change you to become more like Jesus. He wants to set you free to become the person he's created you to be. And then he says, look, this process takes time. This process is incremental. And you're going to be tempted to shortcut the process. You're going to be tempted not to be patient, right? In the very next verse, He says, and let us not grow weary in doing good for in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. There's a sense in which we invest in our relationship with God, knowing that that investment will in time produce fruit. Don't grow weary. Last week, we talked about four ways to invest. I talked about how walking in the spirit does mean ordering our lives after the spirit. In other words, obeying God. Right? The Spirit, as the giver of all good gifts, is the one who best knows how those gifts should be used. So when he says, do this and don't do that, those aren't laws. They're, they're tracks on which to live. They're guidelines where he says, this is how you're going to get the blessing out of the good gifts I've given you. Right? So we submit to the Spirit. We order our lives around Him. We spend time in the Word of God. The Word of God is God's revelation to us, the Bible. So we open it up and we actually read it. We actually spend time in it because that's God's word to us and he will speak to us in it. We pray um, in God speaking to us in the word, we speak to God in prayer and we share with him our heart and our struggle and our requests and our praise. And we learn to communicate with God instead of being cut off from God, autonomous from God, 
Prayer is that place where we learn to once again enter comfortably into dependence on God, speaking to Him of our needs and our fears and our, our discouragements and our joys, right? And then we do it in community. We do it in an investment with other people. God has put us together with a group of people, basically saying, look, I'm going to indwell not just you individually, but you as the church. So it's important that you're part of the church, that you're part of this community, right? Because you're going to grow at being part of it. Here's the thing, you guys. You're going to get discouraged in all of these things. You're going to be tempted to grow weary. And here's what Paul is saying. Don't mistake short-term struggle with long-term failure. So some of you are going to be like, man, I've, dude, I've been getting into the Word, but I'm reading it and I'm not getting anything out of it. I'm reading it. It's like dry. I'm not meeting God in that. It's just, I don't, I don't, I'm not seeing it, right? I'm praying, but, but it seems like I'm talking to the four walls. It, it, I, don't, I don't hear God back. It feels like I'm so alone in it, right? I'm making wise choices. I'm trying to obey what God wants me to do, but, but it looks like I'm missing out on so much fun when I see my friends making other choices and, and doing other things. I, I feel like, man, I, I'm, my joy isn't being increased. It's being diminished. They seem to be having so much more fun than I do. I'm trying to move into community. I'm trying to hang out with other Christians and other believers and, and kind of do life with them, right? But they're so needy. <laughs> they're like black holes of need. They just suck me dry, right? And so you're going to grow weary of doing good. You're going to grow weary of sowing into your relationship with God. What ends up happening is, is um, you may be tempted to... Uh, instead of waiting for the hope of righteousness. One of the phrases that powerful from the book of Galatians. Remember that God's, it's God's job to change you, not your job to change yourself for God. And that change comes as a byproduct of learning to delight in God and love God. And he changes you in that relationship with God. There are going to be some areas of your life you don't like. There are going to be some changes you want to see happen, and it's going to happen too slow for your taste. You're going to be like, God, what is taking you so long? And you're going to be tempted to do it yourself or try. So you're going to be tempted to, to man up for God, to get more self-controlled, to beat yourself up with shame, to turn back to the tools of religion instead of the freedom of grace and try to, to manipulate your way into growth instead of coming to God, pleading with him to give you the growth you desperately need. You're going to grow weary in doing good and you're going to resort to the works of the flesh. For some of you, it's, it's going to be, um, maybe it's too slow for you to grow in joy, right? You got this new relationship with God and there was this joy to begin with and it's kind of gotten dry and, and you're, you know, you're spending time in the word and you're spending time in, in community and, and you're spending time in prayer and, and the joy and the peace, man, they're just not growing. You're going to be tempted to short circuit the process. Yeah, I know that, that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, those are all fruit of the spirit, right? But, but they're not happening. So you're going to be tempted to indulge the flesh, to pursue short-term pleasure, to try to mimic joy through short-term happiness. What Paul is saying is don't grow weary of sowing. Don't resort to the shortcut of the flesh. Don't mistake short-term struggle with long-term failure and don't mistake short-term pleasure with long-term success. Just because something feels good in the moment doesn't mean it's, it's going to, in the end, produce the fruit you want, right? Something really, really cool 
and insightful um, from verse 8. The one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. I mean, that sounds like Bible talk, doesn't it? It really is. If you sow to the flesh, that part of you that's in rebellion against God, you'll reap corruption. Okay? Think about what that means. What is corruption? Corruption is when a good thing goes bad. It's when something whole falls apart. What he's saying is if you invest, if you invest into that part of you that wants to do life without God, you're going to be building a life that will go bad. It'll fall apart. What you're building to try to make yourself happy will not last. It'll fall apart. But if you sow to the Spirit, you reap eternal life. Now, eternal life is is not just a length of time. It's a quality of time. So we're talking about eternal life. We're not just talking about, oh yeah, you get to live forever, right? Living forever, a horrible life would be horrible, right? Eternal life is actually a quality of life. It's life connected to God, life as it was meant to be lived. In other words, you will progressively, incrementally start experiencing more and more of the way life is supposed to be. So what we have at the heart of this passage is this tension. You have a war in your heart. And and if you invest into one side, the flesh, you'll be investing in corruption. There may be short-term pleasure, but things will fall apart. But there's also the Spirit. And if you invest in your relationship with God, if you invest and wait and don't grow weary in doing good, God will bring you the fruit of this struggle. That's the heart of this passage. And we, the way we see this played out in the rest of this passage is the way it relates to relationships. Okay, Take a look at verse 25 and 26. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. That's what we unpacked last week. And um, that the idea there is, is that um, uh, we order our lives after the Spirit and invest into our relationship with God. Verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let us not become conceited. That word conceited is a Greek word, kenodoxa. Doxa means glory. Kena means empty. Do not become filled with empty glory, or, or some translations put it as vain glory. In other words, what, what that means is, is when we become conceited, we're trying to put the weight of our worth in something that can't handle it, is unworthy of it. In other words, we're building our identity on something that's not worthy of building our identity on. So when we become conceited, we're trying to puff ourselves up. We're trying to get a glory that doesn't belong to us. We are, in a sense, trying to build our little kingdoms in competition with God's. We're trying to build a glory on which we can build our lives instead of resting in the glory of God, right? So when we get conceited, we are being filled with vain glory. And what ends up happening that comes out of that is that we end up either provoking or envying. We end up either provoking or envying at the end of that verse, These are two ways that people relate to each other, either provoking or relating. Provoking is a stance of somebody who feels superior to others and looks down on them. Envying is the stance of somebody who feels inferior to others and looks up to them. They seem like opposites, right? Overconfidence, underconfidence, um, conceit and, and, and insecurity. But the reality is they come from the same place. They both come from having a heart committed to empty glory, to building my own glory, 
protecting my own kingdom, establishing my own name. It comes from a vain, glorious desire to crave honor. We're trying to build our own glory instead of resting God's. Here's the thing. We all have a little bit of both. We all have a little bit of this provoker in us, and we all have a little bit of this envier in us. But I would guess more than likely you lean one way or the other. Now, Tim Keller has done some great work on developing uh, some diagnostic questions that I think might be worth pausing and taking a look at. So consider these questions and, and just consider your own heart. Do I have a tendency to blow up or do I have a tendency to clam up? Provokers tend to blow up, very power-oriented, very um, dominant-oriented, right? Enviers have a tendency to clam up. Do I tend to pick arguments with people or do I completely avoid confrontation? Provokers tend to pick arguments with people. (laughs) Provokers have a need to correct everyone at all times. Not always, but sometimes it comes out that way, right? You just know you're right and you know you're right all the time. And when people are wrong, you just feel a compulsion to make sure they know they're wrong and you're right, right? They're constantly picking, right? Arguments and corrections. Or do you avoid confrontation? The kind of person that doesn't matter whether somebody's wrong or right, doesn't matter to you as long as you can avoid confrontation. You, 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 you hate the idea of, of actually having that confrontation. Do I tend to get very down on individuals and groups of people? Or am I often embarrassed and intimidated around certain classes or kinds of people? Provokers tend to look down on groups of people. Their first impulse is is to criticize, to condemn, to feel superior, right? Um, Every time you can see this on Facebook, anytime there's this like, like this big thing that suddenly blows up and and becomes the craze on Facebook, um, there are certain people that feel the need to condemn all the sheep jumping in and following those crazes. Like every single time, it's predictable. There's certain, certain friends of mine, every single time they'll condemn, oh, you big dummies jumping in and doing this dumb thing, right? Um, and that's a provoker's heart. Well, there's envier's hearts too. And the envier hearts are the ones looking at the Facebook thing light up and they're like, why aren't I part of that? You know what I'm saying? Like, like how come I'm left out? How can I, I'm, I'm not, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, so one condemns, the other feels left out. One, one feels superior, one, one feels um, inferior and embarrassed. When criticized, do I get very angry and very judgmental and simply attack right back? Or do I get very discouraged and very defensive and make lots of excuses and give right in? Right? The provoker, when they get criticized, man, they attack, Right? Who are you to criticize me? Who are you to attack me? They feel attacked quickly. The envier, on the other hand, gets very discouraged, very internalizing, very defensive, and they make lots of excuses or they give right in. Do I often think I would never, ever do what this person has done, the provoker who feels superior, or do I often look at people and say I could never, ever accomplish what this person does, the envier? Here's the thing, you guys. If you're one or the other of these, Especially if you're the provoker, you probably right now feel superior to the envier. That's part of your brokenness. You're sitting there going, well, I'm not that weak person. At least I'm not, you know what I'm saying? But here's the thing. If you're trapped by a need to accumulate vainglory, whether you're a provoker or an envier, you are not free to love. You are trapped by a need to use. See, Paul wants to free us 
The gospel wants to free us to love people instead of use people. See, if you're trapped by need to build your own glory, you are trapped to compare yourself to other people at all times. And what ends up happening, man, is this just things fall apart. Good things go bad. What ends up happening if you stay here is that you will be um, caught in emotional immaturity. You will be weak emotionally, unable to love well. And what ends up happening is this vain glory produces a prideful weakness. Prideful where you, you feel puffed up and strong. Weakness where you feel condemned and, and separated. And, and you'll feel both, though you may tend toward more pride or more weakness. But they both come from that same place. Here's the thing. Gospel, the gospel. Grace produces within us a humble confidence. The exact opposite. It produces within us a humble confidence, a gentle strength. See, a walk in the Spirit frees our hearts to love instead of use people. And we can see that in the way it works out with conflict. Take a look at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, I used to think that this meant if I, if I snuck up on you and caught you red-handed. Like, I caught you. It's my turn to correct you, right? But that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is, is if I see someone caught being caught by a transgression. It's more like um, I see them actually being caught in a net. It's a totally different way of looking at it. It's not about me uh, being like this guy that, that, that I'm looking around and snooping to see where you're messing up. It has more to do with the fact that my heart sees you being caught by a transgression, and I know it's going to cause things to fall apart in your life. I know it's going to cause good things to go bad in your life. You who are spiritual should restore him. All right, this is not some super class of Christians, right? Those who are spiritual, we just read this. Who are the ones that are spiritual? The ones who are walking in the spirit, developing a sensitive relationship with God. Sometimes somebody who's been a believer for a week is more spiritual than somebody who's been a believer for 25 years. There are some people that have been believers for so long, they've become incredibly comfortable being religious and they're very foreign to the spirit of God. What we're talking about is somebody who's actually sensitive to the leading of the Spirit of God. Spirituality is not about... Here's a, you can have somebody who has more brokenness in their life than somebody else, more sin present in their life, and they are more spiritual than somebody who seems to have it all together. Why? Because they're more sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. They're actually delighting in their relationship with God, right? And so you who are spiritual, you who are walking in the Spirit, restore Him. In a spirit of gentleness, keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. There's that humility, recognizes whatever you've done, I could also do, right? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What this is saying is essentially, I see you being ensnared by thinking or, or activities that are tied to the flesh. And I know, I can see the outcome. I know where that's going. You're going to get hurt. Things are going to fall apart, and I love you enough to say, that's bad news, man. All right, think about how the provoker handles this. The provoker comes in and the provoker basically says, good thing I'm not like you because I'm here to help you. I can fix you. A provoker comes in and sees you as a problem to be fixed. And so they come in and, and their job is to kind of swoop in with all the right information, with all the right truth, and basically say, bam, you're a sinner, you're wrong, this is the right way, I'm out. That does damage on multiple fronts. For the person being corrected, it makes them feel condemned. 
It makes them feel like they're less than, like you've got it all together and I just don't. You know what I'm saying? That can actually make the problem worse for them. But it's bad for you too as a provoker because it's exhausting. It says that we're supposed to bear one another's loads. How do you bear someone's load? You get into the trench with them, you get under it, and you put your back into it. You look at them eye to eye and you're in there with them, right? Somebody who's a provoker and trying to fix this, what they're trying to do is come in and basically say, here, let me, hold, let me, let me help you for a sec. And they're standing out like this at a distance. Why? Because they can't look at them eye to eye because they're up here, right? So let, me, let me just hold this for a minute. Let me, let me just support you for a minute. Don't you have that fixed yet? Why, why don't you? I'm getting tired here. I'm getting exhausted, right? Over here. Okay, I'm done. I did my best. See, a provoker gets exhausted trying to help people because they're doing it in their own strength. It robs them of community and love. It's amazing how much energy comes from love. When you really love someone who's struggling, man, it just fills your sails. It just gives you energy. It gives you life. It doesn't mean that it's not exhausting at times, but it does mean you have a much deeper reservoir of strength. In fact, you tap into the very power of God and the very encouragement of the Spirit. Now, for the envier, what they do is they see somebody struggling, and, and, and their temptation is just to ignore it, right? Their temptation is just to walk by and not do anything about it. Why? Because if I say something, you might not like me. It might not go well. Do you see they're both driven by that vain, glorious need of protecting themselves, of building their own glory? One wants to show how right they are how smart they are, how they have it all together. The other wants to protect how you think about them, but they're both driven by a need to build their own glory. And so the vainglory or the, uh, the, the envier will come in and, and basically either bypass it or step in and only do partial job. Like they'll be like, oh, hey, I see you ensnared there. Can I help maybe, right? Oh, your arm is dislocated. That's bad. That's probably not going to go well for you. Um, let me tell you what, let's, oh, that hurts. Okay, I'm done, right? So, so they come in and they do half a job. Why? Because they don't have the emotional strength or the spiritual reserves necessary to actually get into the mess with somebody, to actually suffer with them and maybe even suffer from them in the process. See, if you're a provoker and envier, if you're walking in the flesh, man, you cannot do the work of the Spirit. You become a fairly lousy member of the Christian family. You just condemn people. You're not fixing anybody and you're puffing yourself up with pride or filling yourself with humiliation. Somebody who is walking in the spirit is led by love to confront, right? There's that boldness of the gospel that says, look, I can see you eye to eye. I I know you're struggling with this. This is going to be bad news. And so I'm going to point this out to you because I know where it's going. Not because I'm better than you, but because I I understand what it is to be caught in a transgression. I know what it is to be caught in temptation. I know what it is to be caught by wrong thinking or wrong action. I can look at you eye to eye and I'm down here with you because I love you, man, right? And and then you're actually able to walk with them to help them recover. You, You restore them in gentleness. You're not trying to get it done quick because they're not a problem to fix. You're down there to help them bear their burden to help them grow in strength. Do you see the difference? So the gospel frees you to love people instead of use people. You're free to actually come in in the strength of grace and bless others in the strength of grace. 
It's fundamentally different. But the Spirit is going to, as we move through our passage, see that, that He's not just going to free us to love people instead of use people. He's going to free us to use wealth instead of love wealth. There, there's something very, very powerful about wealth. Take a look at verses 6 and 10. Verse 6, one who has taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Verse 10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. If we are trapped by a need to build and protect our own vainglorious lives, to protect our own glory, we will come to love our wealth. Why? Because there's pretty pretty much no better way to build and protect our own little kingdoms than with money or with possessions or with time, whatever our reserve is that we're trying to protect. Think about it. If I, if I protect my own time, if I protect my own money, if I protect my own interests, I get to do what I want to do. That's pretty important to building my own kingdom. I get to be secure from inconvenience and suffering. So I get to kind of delve in and get out of it whenever it's convenient to me, right? The, the mess that's out there doesn't have to intrude on my life. It allows me, if I protect my time, my resources, my finances, it allows me to insulate myself and isolate myself. It allows me to project a specific image through the way I dress or the cars I drive or, or the people I hang out with or the things that I do, right? It allows me to project a specific image. It allows me to build my own vainglorious life. Here's the thing. Provokers tend to use money to intimidate and protect. Provokers use their finances, their, their wealth, whatever it is, money, time, whatever. They use it to, to intimidate. It's a power move, right? It's, it's something that makes people feel inferior to them. And they, and they like to feel superior. But it also allows them to protect what they have because they don't like to risk it. Enviers tend to use their money to impress or indulge. Enviers want you to think highly of them. And so they will spend their money to, to, to make themselves look good so you think more highly of them or, or maybe even to do things for you with the, because they value your opinion, right? They don't do it for everybody. They only do it for the people that will make them feel better about themselves right? Um, And so they use it very selectively to impress specific people or to indulge their own desires. Like they they get so fed up trying to appeal to and get the approval of others that they end up using their resources to indulge themselves because it's it's, um, really the the only, it's like self-medication. When I use my resources to indulge myself, I don't feel like such a loser. I don't feel so left out. I don't feel you know, here's the thing. If you're led by the spirit, you will be progressively freed to use your wealth instead of love it. Verse six tells us that we are supposed to share all good things with those who teach us. All right. In Paul's time, Paul would go in and and share the gospel. People would become believers. He would start a church. He would instruct those people and then he would move on and he'd go to another place and share the gospel and people become believers. He'd start a new church and then he would start a cycle. Like he would go back through those churches to teach. and, and, And it was essential that people supported him. So when it says share all good things with those who teach, it, it means really all good things. So it was essential that Paul would hear encouragement because it's an incredibly discouraging life. He is constantly out on the forefront dealing with problems, dealing with trouble, like, like at the tip of the spear, the one that's getting the most friction, right? It's incredibly important that your leaders hear your encouragement. And your love. He's saying, share all good things with those who, who teach you, right? Be a blessing to those who bless you. That's what he's saying. Be a blessing to those who bless you, 
right? They're investing in you, so you should share all good things with them. It doesn't mean that there should never be critique or correction or things like that, but it does mean that that should be the, shouldn't be the only thing the leader hears, right? Today, we struggle with this idea of consumerism in the church. We're a consumeristic society. We're consumed with it um, because it's what drives our economy, right? You have to buy things and, and everything, anytime the economy goes flat, there's this huge encouragement. Well, go out and consume, go and consume because that creates jobs. So as you spend money to consume, it creates jobs. But, but that consumeristic mentality gets spread over to the church. What ends up happening is people come to church the same way they go to a restaurant to get what's good and critique what's bad. They come in a position where they are like, I am here to sample this and sample that, and I'm going to sample some of this. And Oh, that's good. The worship music, that was, that was all right. The sermon, a little too long for my taste, a little dry. Um, that should have been a little juicier. And the coffee, I like fair trade coffee better. It makes me feel less guilty about drinking it. You know what I'm saying? Like, so they come in and they're consuming and critiquing. And what ends up happening is they walk away and write this Yelp review about the church comparing it to how they've consumed in other places. That's not sharing all good things. That's consuming all good things. You become a dead end of grace. That, it's like, and here's the thing. What happens is it cuts off your learner spirit. When you come to church to consume, to be a consumer, you're not getting the blessing because you're here as, as, as like this, profession, this, this, this professional person to kind of critique everything. The way we get blessed is to come with an expectant heart, expecting to hear from God. So maybe my sermon is dry or long, no surprise there, or just bad, okay? But if you come expecting to hear from God, that doesn't mean that the Spirit of God isn't going to show you something from the Word of God that absolutely changes you in that moment. You come expectant, not consuming. You come humble, not pridefully. So he's saying, come with a learner's heart. Bless those who bless you. And that includes financially. But it was essential for Paul that people supported him financially um, because that helped him push out in, in his work, right? Now, he was also a tent maker. He supported himself um, for a good portion of his ministry through his own activities. But there were other people in the church that didn't. And it was essential that as people were being blessed, that they blessed, both with their words, with their affection, and with their finances, now, as you guys, and this is the reality, but as you guys give in the offering here at Trailhead Church, you are, in, in essence, blessing. You're blessing me, and you're blessing Brian, and you're blessing our part-time staff, because I have the great privilege of having this ministry as my full-time job, right? I am consumed with the leading and the teaching of this church, and, and it is a beautiful privilege. And it's through the blessings of the people of this church that that, that is possible, for both me and Brian and for our part-time staff, right? So blessing those who bless you is, a, is, is vital and important. But, but there are other ways and, and other leaders that I want you to think about blessing. We have some key leaders in our church, our community group leaders. They are the lead disciplers of our church. They open up their homes. They invest time and money and relational capital into your growth, into your blessing. I mean, how are you blessing them? How are you blessing the ones who bless you? How are you blessing them with words of encouragement? How are you blessing them with words that, that uplift and build and encourage and strengthen? How are you blessing them with, with gifts? It says to bless them in all ways, right? Give them 
some tickets to the Cardinals game or the Rams game or, 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 well, dude, it's almost the playoffs. I'd never do that. Even better, right? How much more honor are they going to feel when they know how much you're sacrificing to give it to them? You know what I'm saying? Like, bless those who bless you. That opens the floodgates of the experience of grace. As you bless those who bless, what ends up happening is, is it creates this incredible cycle of gratitude and grace, an experience of grace. As they're encouraged, they lay down their lives for you. And as you're encouraged, you lay down your lives for them. You're sowing to the Spirit. If you're sowing to the flesh, it's all about you. It's all about your good, your, your experience, your benefit, your, and you will reap corruption. So to the Spirit. So grace will free you from loving what you have to using what you have for God's glory. And finally, grace will free you to boast in the right things. You will learn to stop boasting in your strength and start boasting in His. All, right, all of these problems that we've been talking about stem from this root where we are fighting for our own glory. And what Paul is saying is, is while there is a motivation that stems from Kenadoxa, this, this need for empty glory, where you're trying to build glory that's in competition with God's, build your life on an identity that comes from your strength, your record, your honor. There's another kind of boasting that is actually good. There's another kind of glorying that is actually good and healthy, right? Not all boasting is bad. Only vain, glorious boasting is bad. And we see the comparison at the end here, starting in verse 12, where Paul basically um, makes some comparisons. He says, and he's talking about the false teachers that have been attacking the church. It is those who want to make a good showing of the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. The false teachers, why are they there? Why are these guys coming into the church? They're showing up and they're saying, believe in Jesus, that's awesome, but now get circumcised. Now obey the law. Now obey the Jewish rules. Why are they doing that? They're doing it to avoid persecution. These Jewish people became believers and then felt immediately the pressure of their homes, their cultures, their, their circle of friends. And they knew that if they stood in grace, they would be persecuted. They would be ridiculed. They would lose standing. They would lose glory. And so instead of recognizing that urge of the flesh, which says you better defend yourself, you better build your own kingdom, you better look good in front of people... They gave into it and said, I will believe in Jesus and live for my own glory. And Paul is saying, don't live like that. Don't live a divided life because it will reap. That is sowing to the flesh and you will reap corruption. Things will fall apart. Instead, have your boasting in the right place. Verse 14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says, look, man, I, I have a boast. My boast is in grace. My glory is not in my reputation. My glory is, is not in how many people follow me, how many people love me, how many people say I'm wonderful, how people look at me, how I compare to others. My strength is not my record. My strength is Christ's record. My success isn't mine, it's Christ's. Any advancement I've made in this life isn't mine. It is Christ's. My boast is the cross. 
Now, it's interesting to me that Paul continually goes back to the cross. Why doesn't he go back to the empty tomb? Why doesn't he say, my boast is the resurrection? You know what I'm saying? Like the resurrection, man, what better symbol of Christianity is there than an empty tomb? Man, that is glory and light and victory. That is Jesus raised from the dead. My boast is a risen Savior, right, man? I'm identified with the winning team. I'm a winner, right? Why isn't it the, the empty tomb? Why the cross? The cross is bloody. The cross is humiliation. The cross is suffering. Because you have to go to the cross to get to the empty tomb. His boast is in the cross because in the cross, he hears two very clear things. One, you're such a bad sinner, Jesus had to die. God wanted to solve your problem, Paul, but your problem was so bad, the Holy One of God had to die in your place. Suffer the humiliation of rejection and die. But you are so loved. He was glad to do it. You have a hero that willingly became your substitute to die the death you deserve to die. See, the cross speaks to that humble confidence of grace. Humble because I am an absolutely undeserving recipient of blessing. Confident because I am fully accepted in the beloved. I am so loved. If he did, if God gave us his son in that way, is there anything else he won't give us? If he loved us enough to have Jesus die in our place, is there anything he won't give us with him? Humble confidence. His boast is in the cross. And this is freedom. As a result, he says, the world is crucified to me and me to the world. That's freedom. I don't have to live for the world's approval. I don't have to live for the world's definition of success. I am dead to the pressures to impress people and to live up to this world's expectations of what success is. My responsibility is to walk in the Spirit. My responsibility is to live in the overflow of the joy of my relationship with God, to be who God has created me to be, to do what God has created me to do. That is freedom. I don't have to impress you. I don't have to live for your approval. I don't have to be better than you because I know I'm not, but I'm still loved. This is freedom. I can enjoy the good things of the world without being enslaved to anything in this world. I can say that that I am free to delight in God's good creation without being enslaved to God's good creation. I celebrate the fact that the God who created all these things loves me, delights in me, and fully blesses me in Jesus. And this is an incredible story that is being spelled out in our time as God is moving forward on mission to call broken and lost people into the wholeness of the gospel so that your life doesn't have to fall apart. Good things don't have to go bad. We have a God who is, who is the God of great reversals, the God who took death and turned it back to life, and he invites you into that great adventure. Ah, it's a great segue to join us next week as we start a new sermon series called The Great Adventure. Right now, we're going to move into a time of response. And as I do so, I'd like to speak a benediction over you. We've done this a couple times here, and and it's a little weird, but I'm okay with that. I I hope it's a blessing to you. Let me explain the way this works. It's something I learned when I was traveling overseas in Central uh, Asia um, with a people group that, that 
I came to love and, and, and learn from. And, and every time at meal, they would speak a blessing, and they did it this way. They would cup their hands, cup them nice and tight, because that's your way of, of saying, I receive the blessing. And after I speak the benediction over you, you, we will all wash it over our heads, basically saying, this is mine, right? This is true of me. And we will say, and I'll say all God's people said, and we'll all say amen. The word amen literally means it is true. I accept this by faith. I take this blessing and claim it as my own. Now, if you're not a believer, it, this is going to be weird. And I'm a, you, just, you don't have to do this. I'm giving you an out here, okay? You can just watch and, um, and, and that's cool. Okay, but if you're a follower of Christ and you feel the freedom to do this, I want this to be a blessing to you. Okay, so go ahead and cup your hands. Let's put the uh, the verse on the screen. Let me just speak this over to you. So just this is between you and God. This is Psalm 113, verses four through eight. The Lord is high above all nations, and His glory is above the heavens. Who is like our God? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. Because what this means is that you are free. You don't have to lift your own head. You don't have to make your own record. You don't have to make people love you. You don't have to be superior or better than anyone. The God of the universe loves you. And he is the God who lifts the poor and seats them with princes. He is the one who takes people out of their shame and covers them with dignity, takes people out of their weakness and covers them with strength, takes people out of their broken lives and gives them the gift of Christ's resurrection. This is your blessing. And all God's people said, Amen. Let me pray for us. We're going to go into a time of response. We'll share communion together in just a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the incredible gift we have in your son, the gift of freedom, the gift that says we no longer have to prove ourselves. We have nothing to prove and no one to impress because Christ has proved it and you are impressed. (laughs) And if you're pleased with us, what does it matter what anyone else thinks? Lord, I pray that you will set our hearts free to love. Knowing, Lord, that the greatest commodity in this universe is not gold, it's not money, it's not political clout, it is not social influence. The greatest commodity in the universe is love. And you've given it to us in an unending, unlimited supply. Free our hearts to love.